0: Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. My guest on the podcast today is Abhishek Dewan. Abhishek is not a climate scientist. We're branching out a bit this season, and we're having a couple more guests who work in other fields, but whose work is about climate in some way, so he's one of those. Abhishek is the Sustainable Finance and Partnerships Specialist at the United Nations Capital Development Fund, UNCDF. To quote from UNCDF's webpage, it is the United Nations flagship catalytic financing entity for the world's 46 least developed countries. So in his current position, what that means is that, among other things, Abhishek is responsible for coming up with innovative mechanisms for providing sustainable finance to the world's poorest countries. And the mechanism he has come up with is called Climate Insurance-Linked Resilient Infrastructure Finance. Or the acronym is SILRIF, C I L R I F. The basic idea of SILRIF is twofold. First, to provide long term insurance to cities against climate related risks like floods and storms, thus transferring some of the risk to insurers. Then, if the city invests in resilience or adaptation measures that reduce the risk, they get a reduction in the premium on that insurance. So, by doing this, SILRIF will put a real price on climate adaptation in cities and thus unlock new capital for it. Although it sounds simple enough, SILRIF is actually quite radical in some ways, not the least of which is that the insurance industry almost never writes the kind of long-term contracts that are at the core of SILRIF. So it's not operational yet. For around three years, Abhishek has been running a volunteer working group consisting of insurers, academics, engineers, development finance people, and others to try to figure out how to get it going. I've been in that group since almost the beginning. So, this episode is different than others on this podcast, not just in that we have a non scientist guest, but also that my motivation for talking to him was that he's doing a specific project now and one that I myself am involved in. But we still talk about Abhishek's whole life and career, starting with his origins in Lucknow, India, his training and early employment as a mining engineer, and then how he transitioned to finance and then made it to the United States to do a graduate degree at Columbia, in fact, and then eventually into his current role. And then after talking about that, of course, we get into SILRIF itself, what it's trying to achieve, and how and why. I'm very excited about SILRIF, and I've been very happy to be involved in it. I think it's the kind of innovative structure we need to allow what we understand about evolving climate risks to be used in concrete ways to benefit those most threatened by them and the most in need of adaptation finance. I've learned a great deal from being in the working group, and I admire Abhishek's creativity, leadership, and ability to keep it together. So the content here is a little different than usual, but it's still a normal deep convection episode at the end and a great conversation. So let's leave it there and get to my conversation with Abhishek Dewan. Okay. Welcome, Abhishek. Thanks for doing this.
1: Thank you, Adam, for having me here.
0: So let's start as we always do with your
1: biography. So where are you from? Where were you born? I was born in India, in, in one of the smaller cities in India called Lucknow, Yeah, um, which w- used to be at some point uh, the capital of uh, the colonized India for a while. Is that right?
0: Yes. And tell me about your family. What did your folks do? Are you brothers and sisters?
1: Yes, I, I have a sister, and my father uh, was a banker, uh-huh. uh, so I kind of went in his path at some point in my career as well. Yeah. Uh, and and my uh, mother has always been a homemaker.
0: Usually this is the part where I ask if you're interested in science, but you're my non-scientist guest. Uh, so I'm you...
1: actually an engineer. Oh, you were an engineer? Yes.
0: I guess I knew this about you, but I <laughs> I, I, I don't do my homework before these, as you can tell, and I forget <laughs> everything I knew about the people. So tell me about your connection to engineering. Did that start at a, a, as a child? or?
1: Um, I, I think uh, in India, uh, when you're growing up, there are two, at, at least at the time I was growing up, there were just two uh, sort of streams. Yeah. One was medicine and one was engineering.
0: Well, you know, it's funny because I've heard this, but I usually hear it about immigrants. I mean, it was the same for my, you know, people when they were first generation. They were, my, my dad and his brothers were doctor, lawyer, and engineers. These are the paths for immigrants. But even within India, you're saying these are the two most respected... Uh, 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 yes. Path.
1: Yes. I mean, if you go to um, if you if you go to any of the missionary schools where English was the medium of teaching studies, and then there were just majority was these two parts, medicine or engineering. If you want to go in the direction of sciences, and then you can go into commerce and arts. But in my school at the time I went into uh, the eleventh grade, which is after the high school, I only had these two options: biology and maths, and physics and chemistry was common for both the streams. I see. This is um, a missionary school? It? it was a missionary so school. So these were set up by the... By, by the missionaries, school, by in missionaries in India. In and and a lot of people you will meet from India from the time I am would have gone to one of these schools, in, especially in North India, but also in South India.
0: Meaning, So you had a religious education there too, or not really so much?
1: Uh, was no, it was not religious education. I mean, we, we did have the morning prayers and the lunch prayers, but nothing beyond that. Right. And we were taught Sanskrit and Hindi in in school as well so right it it was but the medium of teaching was english because most of the books are in english right so the, there was not much of an option there
0: right but you're not actually a christian are you i am not so I'm most people in those
1: schools are are non-christians are yeah, yeah. I, I think i would say majority are non Christians. right 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 <laughs> it's
0: just that there's relatively few outside of goa right but it's but it's
1: just the legacy of the schools it's yeah. the legacy of the schools and they are good schools yeah, uh, they are good schools, uh, and and most people go, come out of out of there. Right.
0: Well, any anything else we should say about your childhood that was relevant to your st- longer story?
1: So I went into the math stream because I liked math and I wanted to become an engineer. Right. And and then the, you have these IITs and and. Yes. Institutions which have a very highly competitive sort of exam yes, that yes. everybody tries to get into with with a one percent kind of success rate.
0: Did you do this extra school where you stay late at night and all that kind of stuff? Uh,
1: yes, we have to do some kind of uh, coaching, um, you know, to prepare for those exams. Yeah, but we didn't have the financial resources many times, yeah. so I kind of did it, but in bursts and stops, uh, to the extent <laughs> my my dad could afford. Yeah, so I don't sort of blame that I kind of didn't get that extra bit of education in a continuous way. Maybe that would Mm. have gotten me into computer science. uh, And I ended up being in in mining engineer. Mm. Uh, And I think it's just a matter of sort of opportunity there. Uh, If you could not afford it, there was a bit of a disadvantage.
0: And so you're saying like different engineering specialties are mining engineering is slightly less difficult to get into than computer science.
1: Well, it is a grading system, right? So, right. It, it, say two thousand people are selected in a year, yeah. and there are limited seats in each branch. Right. And so, the people with the highest rank get to pick their. Oh, choices. I see.
0: It's a, that's how it works. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> the high school system in New York City, by the way, is similar. <laughs> the, 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 so the, you uh,
1: can't really. Uh, yeah. I mean, you could give the choices, but you would get what you get at the rank you. Right. Right. you are at right uh, so but I, I mean the school that i went to is known for mining it's called indian school of mines so i think from from that perspective it was a good school to go into it was probably it was probably the best school for mining engineering in the country it was based on it was started in 1926 by the british based on royal school of mines in london
0: which city was it in?
1: it was in Dhanbad, which is sort of the mining or coal capital of india in in Right. Back in those days, um, so right. a lot of CEOs in in mining and oil companies in India come from there. So it was it was a good place to go uh, ultimately. But uh, I, I probably wanted to be more a computer science person than than a mining engineer at that point. You but I, yeah. I didn't know what was what.
0: No passion for mining, particularly.
1: <laughs> no passion, I would say, <laughs> for mining. Uh, I mean, I, I yeah, going underground was not really. Something I was looking forward to. Did you do some of that? Did you spend time in mines, actually? Yes, during during the education, we had the summer uh, internship that we had to do. Wow. So uh, and also excursions during the during the term. So we would go like once in a while during the term to visit a mine to see how blasting works, how explosives work, how some of the machinery works. When you get taught, shown a machinery, then you go to the mine and see. Right. how it actually works
0: have most of your classmates
1: gone into that field or were many like you and didn't really uh I, I would say that majority sort of changed courses they either went into software yeah or they went and did an mba or they went into civil services and became sort of civil servants
0: okay so undergraduate degree in mining and uh i'm guessing i'm trying to remember your
1: age this is in the 90s or so it was in, yeah, I graduated from engineering in 99. Right. And and then I actually worked, went and worked for a mining company, a public sector mining company, for about a year. Oh, okay.
0: What, uh, which, what's it called?
1: It's called National Mineral Development Corporation. Okay. And uh, it's a public sector enterprise in India, uh, owned by the government majority now, I, I would assume. Right. And I have had the opportunity to work in the only diamond mine in india okay and the largest iron ore mine in india all right so that was that was interesting uh getting to see some some diamonds and how much energy we use to produce one diamond how much is it i don't know i'm it's, guessing it's, it's a it's, lot <laughs> it's it's a lot like i, I don't remember the numbers but it was like one by ten thousand, like the amount of ore that you have to mine to get that one carat of diamond right. is just immense. Right. I don't remember the number. Maybe it was one ten thousand, one carat out of ten thousand tons or some such number. It. You, I used to remember it when I was working there. Of course, I knew it. Yeah. I don't remember now, but it was a lot of ore that you have to mine to get that one gram of diamond. Yes.
0: And is it very mechanized or are there a lot of downtrodden workers that have to?
1: Um, back in the day, it was a lot mechanized, I would say. So there were not sort of individual workers. The workers were more in, involved at the time of picking diamonds after it had been really um, sort of been brought down from ore. Ore was obviously huge rocks and they are crushed and, and all of that and uh, they're processed. Right. And then finally they are picked by hand at, at some point. I see. Uh, so it was not a lot of people working at that level, but yes, it, the final picking many times was because you could not just let the ore go, uh, even though there was uh, it was mechanical and optical machinery available to, to identify diamonds, but you still wanted to sort of ensure that you're not letting go of diamonds there.
0: Okay, so one year or I think or something so you had your eye on the door from probably the beginning it sounds like or like well, how, what how, you know what was the what was your thinking about your future at this time
1: so I I all I was always thinking that I'll go and do an MBA when okay. I was graduating okay. Um, I, I tried actually when I was in engineering school a lot of my classmates wanted to go into civil services right so in the first second year of my engineering, um, I started preparing for civil services and I found that it was too much theory for preparing for those exams. And right. I'm more of a math quant person. Right. So I, it's very hard for me to sort of write long form answers. <laughs> <laughs> and I realized, and then I was looking at my other classmates who were studying for uh, the CAT exam as, as it used to be called for MBA. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this looks more interesting because I don't have to write any long form answer. So these are multiple choice questions. Yeah. Even if it inclo- includes a lot of language, I think that would be relatively easier or that's more up my alley. So All I right. kind of switched around the third and the fourth year yeah. to say, okay, I'll do an MBA, but I want to work for a couple of years.
0: And this was the time, I can't remember the exact timing but this was at the time when the indian economy was opening up a lot right it had been much more state controlled and then many sectors started uh liberalizing kind of around this time. about 10
1: years before so around 1990s is when the economy started to open right so there were already sort of large banks like city hsbc etc and, and other marketing firms and, right. and so on they were already there right uh, by that time Right,
0: so to get an m b a would have had a different meaning ten years earlier than
1: yes, then yes, did by then, yes, right, so is that what you did right after the it's a funny story, like I was not planning to take the exam immediately. I thought I'd work for a couple of years, sort of understand what business is about before going into the grad school, yeah. I wanted to spend two to three years, but then my roommate at that time was preparing for these exams, and I was like, I would come back from my shifts, and we we used to have these eight-hour shifts, which would rotate uh, night shift, afternoon shift, morning shifts
0: monitoring some operations i mean
1: yeah because it was a 24 hour operation right i mean it's not office you're in a in the field uh, or i was in the field yeah. uh, and, and so it was like a eight hour operation right, right. Uh, so we had to work in shifts and it would okay. rotate every week and i would come back and my roommate at that time who was also my classmate uh, from engineering school was studying uh, for these exams and i was like Maybe I should also, because anyway, we cannot do anything sort of fun <laughs> <laughs> at all. And and also the D- name. Why? Because we're, we're Because was, he was studying all the oh, time. I so see, he right? would come back from work oh, and he would study. Right. And, and so I was like, oh my God, maybe I should also start. <laughs> uh, so I started sort of using his notes and then I got my own and I was like, okay, let me prepare. And then I ran just before, like one month before the deadline I submitted the applications to write the exam. I see. And I got selected. (laughs) Okay. So I went into business school. Right. Where? Uh, Which place? It's called Coricode. It's in uh, south of India. Okay. And again, it's one of those Indian institutes of management, uh, which again was rather hard to get into. So I was surprised myself that I got in. Right. But everything has a reason probably. So this was then a couple of years? How long does it take? It was to? two years. It okay. was a two-year full-time. And I had to take a loan to go study. Right. Although it was subsidized heavily, but still uh, I had to take a loan. and, and Also to study. live, right? You also to... to live, yes. Yeah, okay. Because I, I thought I'll save enough so that I could pay the living cost when I go. But it was just a year, so I hadn't saved right. <laughs> pretty much anything to... To, I literally borrowed money from my uncle and uh, my grandmother for the living expenses. Yeah. And I said, I'll pay you back. When I pay my loan back, I'll pay you back. All right.
0: And, and it, did it live up to your expectations? It's quantitative and you didn't have to write long things? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I did. I mean, there were courses on organizational behavior and, and human resources, which were compulsory courses. So in those, I had to write. But otherwise, I stuck to more finance and systems uh, so mm-hmm. more computer science kind of courses uh, and finance courses so that was finance industry was sort of where you imagined yes. you'd go yes
0: right and and that's what happened right
1: I, I know you did I, something I actually between... started in in the IT industry but more uh, sort of working uh, with a company that was creating product for the financial services industry like a software company or? it was a software company indeed okay. we programmer uh, no, I was into. I was more on the business side, so yeah. helping them create use cases for their product for the financial services, and then actually getting into sales of the same product. What was the product? The product was a very interesting product, actually. So um, this company had created a billing software. You know, you you get your bills from AT and T, and they have those detailed bills. Right, and they were trying to. See if a similar product could be created for the financial services industry, and they had sold a similar product without changing too much to a couple of banks in Europe. Yeah. So they were more confident that if they customized it, they should be able to create similar use cases like you have the billing in the telecom industry and through the banking industry. I see, and it it has worked out like. I've been following the company. It's, they they have some of the largest banks as their clients today. What's it called? I don't. I it's forgot. called Suntech Business Solutions.
0: Okay, yeah. So how long were you
1: there? I was there for a couple of years. Yeah. And then I was able to actually get into banking,
0: which was what you wanted, I guess. Which is what
1: I wanted. Yes. Yes.
0: So tell me about that. What ha- What?
1: So um, I wanted to work in financial markets. Um, like equity trading or, or some such thing. And I applied for this job and I, I, I had a written test and I had an interview. And I thought I was going to work into equity derivatives. Yeah. Uh, so I took the job and then I reached my office on the first day and I go there and I see that that desk was not looking at equity derivatives. It was actually looking at currencies and interest rates. Have they told you it was going to be equity derivatives. I, I didn't know it was. It never came up in in the multiple interviews or anything. I think we you just we all had their, our own assumptions. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> they thought that I knew what I was getting into, and I thought that this is what I was getting into, which was equity because the written test was all about equity derivatives because oh, those are standard questions that you have in the books in, right. in business school, uh, like Black Scholes model. Yes. If you see the book called Hull on options and derivatives. Most of the examples are around equity, right? <laughs> so my base assumption was that that's what I was going to do, right? Um, and they thought that I knew that there was a currency and interest rate derivative desk. Uh, so I I got in there. It was not very difficult, but it it was a shock for me for the first day. At least. And what company is this? This is a bank called IDBI Bank. It's oh, okay. It it's it was a partly government owned bank but no it was private also so right. it was a mix of public and private sector
0: all right equity and derivatives is the thing that i mean the black shoals equation and all that is what in the early wave of physicists going into wall street you know in the in the 90s when it when there was a tough job market in physics it's, it's what a lot of them did and then the crash financial crash got blamed on them because they made all these things that nobody else understood and the and
1: ltcm a, is a great example right the the company called long term capital markets they right. they really were trying to use the options and the black scholes models etc to right to make money
0: right okay but you weren't doing that instead currency and interest rates did you become interested in that i mean
1: i, I did and and i did it for almost 10 years i really was interested because you could really design some innovative structures yeah and and use markets to do very interesting interesting stuff and where were you living so i lived in different parts uh in this job i was in bangalore i was in chennai right and i was in mumbai right so these Subsecret- are the, the big business capital big business yeah
0: okay so 10 years doing currencies and interest rates
1: what caused you to change from that path i felt that um you know once there is only so much Innovation you could do in currency and interest rates. Uh, And
0: you felt a desire to do innovation. You didn't want to just have a job and make however much money and
1: live well. (laughs) You you could say that. And also, after the financial crisis, actually, there were restrictions on what kind of products we could do. In India, compared to New York or London, India always had some res- more restrictions uh, on what we could do with currency uh, yeah. and, and interest rates derivatives and that's why we, we had we didn't have sort of uh, the the derivatives related issues that US had during the subprime because there were restrictions but learning from that experience it also brought in some additional restrictions as well in the local market as to what kind of options and swaps you could do and so it was sort of the possibility of further innovation or or structuring new things was also getting reduced
0: so i guess maybe we i should have asked this earlier but i mean maybe we should say for a minute what the these products are i mean so the idea is that the interest rates are fluctuating so you're structuring some kind of products that are based on betting around that. I mean, if the interest rate does this, then you'll pay so much to someone or something like these kind of things that are what was done with equities.
1: Uh, absolutely. Something very similar. And and clients could have exposure on one side or the other. Like right. if a client had borrowed a lo- US dollar loan, but their revenues were in Indian rupees, Yeah. Uh, so they had a foreign currency exposure and then they had a u.s dollar interest rate exposure right right so you would want to hedge their exposure and and most of the clients used to borrow u.s dollars because they in theory it's cheaper because the interest rates are lower mm. in in u.s dollars mm. uh, but there is the the whole point they're lower is because there is the exchange rate risk in the and the interest rate risk which comes along so if you Find the right timing. You could hedge that exposure. Wait, the,
0: the the those risks are greater in dollars than in rupees.
1: Well, if if a client has a rupee revenue stream, yeah, but they have to pay their loan in U.S. dollars. Oh, I see, I see. uh So, uh, and if the dollar interest rates go up, yes, then yes, then the interest rate cost goes up, and if the if the currency depreciates, then they have to use more rupees right. to pay. Right. Those dollars,
0: so they want to make some kind of bet that
1: will go the other way, so that they exactly. Can, yeah. So the borrowings in dollars was really a bet. Right. It was not a hedge. It was actually a bet. So you yeah. try to find a way where you can crystallize the gain. Yeah. If if you look at the overall portfolio, you reduce the risk for the client overall while still saving them some money. So that right. you so they made a bet, and then you realize that markets are going in the opposite direction. So you try to crystallize their gains or reduce their losses i see and it could be the other way around as well there were clients who were exporting and they were but they were borrowing in in indian rupees so you go the other way around
0: yeah and so okay so but somehow this was becoming not interesting enough i mean you said you wanted to you couldn't innovate
1: so Beyond a point, you could th- this not... This
0: doesn't bother everyone, necessarily.
1: But... <laughs> <laughs> it, it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it kind of becomes monotonous at, at some point. Uh, yeah. and, and so you want to try to break out of that. And I kind of came across this opportunity, which was working for this organization, which was newly set up. Uh, it was a policy organization trying to work with policymakers around climate change policy.
0: What was it called?
1: It was called Shakti Sustainable Energy Foundation, and it was part of a global network called Climate Works Foundation. So Climate Works is based in in San Francisco, and it was set up by two foundations that came together, Hewlett and Packard Foundation, that gave a big endowment.
0: Those, of course, are the guys who did the company together. I mean, exactly. I mean,
1: yeah, but they have their own independent foundation. Yeah. Correct, philanthropic. Yeah. Philanthropic.
0: I foundation. had a grant from Packard when I was young. Oh, really? Yes, okay. They sponsor young faculty It's a good. It's a very good deal. Actually, I'm very grateful to them. <laughs> so we both have a history of uh, <laughs> with Packard, Packard Foundation. foundation yes. Yeah. So
1: so they gave a, a I think if I remember the numbers correctly for about a billion dollars to Climate Works Foundation to set up these local organizations in four main. Uh, geographies, one in China, one in India, one in Europe, and one in the U.S., and Climate Works was sort of the umbrella organization, Mm. but before they did that, actually, they asked McKinsey to look at what are the interventions around mitigation, Mm. and come up with sort of best options for policymakers Mm. to make those interventions. And so, there is this very interesting uh, report, which McKinsey came out, which has this Cost curve, called the McKin- which is now called the McKinsey cost curve, mm. and which, which sort of talks about what intervention, so renewables and, and within that solar and wind, and depending on where the technologies were, yeah. it looks at what is the cost of that intervention and which are the easiest interventions to make from a policy standpoint in terms of finance, yeah. what will be easy to finance. And, and it, it has elements like energy efficiency in vehicles, energy efficiency for buildings, energy efficiency on transportation renewables and and so on and so forth and then it also looked at which are the geographies where these interventions should be made and so they used that report to sort of create this organizational structure and the organization was like a think tank
0: that puts out white papers and stuff or does it have some other
1: uh so it it was sort of uh it was a grant making organization working oh, I see. to okay. in Influence policymakers by working with sort of on the ground consulting firms or not for profit organizations that will create these papers that can be then presented to policymakers. I see, uh, and also bringing policymakers together around these topics. I see. And when was this? When did it start? This uh, started in two thousand
0: eight nine. How did you end up doing this? I mean, what n- nothing before. That you'd been
1: doing, kind of. I was actually interestingly in 2009, 10, when when I was I had I was doing these derivative products with clients. Some of my clients were actually, due to the Kyoto Protocol, had set up these projects which made them eligible for carbon credits. Hmm. They were probably at least two or three of those clients which I was helping manage the interest rates and com- and and currency and also then subsequently commodity risk. Had put projects which will make them, which will get them carbon credits
0: through what, what market was that?
1: There was not much of a market, right? So it was still hypothetical. No, no, they, they, they. There was a process, right, oh. uh, of getting the CERs. Okay. Um, where a, a PW there were certain organizations like PwC etc. which had to validate the project, yeah, and then allot them, and and there was a global registry for that. Right for those carbon credits so some two or three of my clients actually had or were expecting to get over 5 7 years carbon credit and they had put in their initial investments into those projects which will earn them those carbon credits right and then they were they were eligible because the the third party monitoring and validation entity had confirmed that if those projects work then they will they should be eligible for these carbon credits but i mean could they then they sell could then them? sell it into the market and at that time the market price was about 12 there was a market in Europe about 12 14 euros okay for these carbon credits per ton per ton yeah exactly um so some of my client or those two clients came to me and said can we because we will get these carbon credits can somehow can you somehow create a structure that would get us some financing sort of receivables discounting, right? They are expecting receivables because carbon credits are, they are, right. all get carbon X amount get, of get carbon. Get some money now in anticipation that later. You, the, yeah. you can sell the carbon credit. So you fix yeah. the price with somebody who is will, willing to buy now and yeah, then yeah. you discount it and, yeah. and give us the upfront.
0: Could you do it? Did it work?
1: So I did a market analysis, how big the market was in India, but also globally for our bank. Yeah, I went to the traders and said, we have these clients already. Would you be willing to take the risk? of the price because there was no forward market in carbon credits. Right. So the trader could not go and sell a three-year carbon credit in the market and get value out of it. They will have to run the risk or at least run the risk and keep rolling it over. I see. But they have to give me a front price. Yeah. Uh, So there there was this Kyoto Protocol deadline coming up in 2010, whether it will be renewed Mm. or not. Right. And so the traders were not willing to take that risk. Mm. And in hindsight, I think it was they were right. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean
0: that was a depressing time. I remember. I mean Copenhagen, you know, kind of got people's that was 09, I think, got people's hopes up, and then was very disappointing. And that a bunch not, of they were all disappointing from then until
1: Paris, basically. Correct. It was in '15 or so. Correct. So I think the traders, in hindsight, were right in not taking that risk. So we didn't end up doing those transactions. But you got interested. I got interested, and I learned a lot. Yeah. Had you uh, thought
0: about climate much before that? No,
1: Yeah, I had not. Not at all, actually. Um, but because I was writing that paper, I had to read a lot and I understand see. the carbon market, but also what was going around it. What That's how I came across Climate Works Foundation. So you saw
0: some of their documents and I then, saw and and then you the...
1: realized, hey, they're opening an office in India. And C- Correct. And they already had started an office. And, and there was a friend of a friend who knew somebody who was, they were looking... For a head of partnerships, okay. So I said I could use sort of my sales skills and my understanding of finance to make a page. Yeah, and that's how I transitioned.
0: Partnerships is basically raising money, right? Exactly. Right.
1: But you need to know the subject to raise money.
0: Yeah, yeah, of course. But I mean, so they had some endowment for something from Hewlett and Packard, but they weren't going to build on that by doing their own. uh, Exactly. Yeah.
1: So they had an endowment, but to grow the program and. You wanted to expand, and and I think as as we stand today, at that time when I joined, they were getting about eight or ten million or something mm. uh, per year. But now they get almost hundred and twenty million wow. a year or something. Wow!
0: And they're giving grants to others to do. They all give. These things, they yeah. used to
1: give grants. I, I think that they have now. They're starting to do work on their own. Mm. Not not so much of a grant making as of today. I don't know the status because there are also. Changes in regulations and and so on in India, which have happened over the last six, seven, eight years, which might have changed their right. ability to do grant making, but they they do the work still.
0: And they're this was in Mumbai or in Delhi?
1: Oh, in Delhi, okay, yeah, I guess right, government. Because you have to work things. with the policymakers, yeah, so you yeah. have to be have the office in Delhi. I think it, it right. just makes logistical sense.
0: So, how long did you stay in this job?
1: I was there two and a half years just before actually I came to Colombia. Okay, right. I left that job to come to Colombia, essentially. And why? So when I moved into that role, I kind of had a vision for my own career that I wanted to get into the space of climate. And I kind of had a sense that in order to make that climate piece work, you will need financing. And I kind of thought that I could sort of... Try and be that bridge at least in my own career right. Learn about climate, what's going on, and then use my background working in large banks on financing and capital markets, derivative markets, and bring it together.
0: So wait, so I mean so what this means is that during this period of two and a half years and I guess whatever time leading up to it that you were exposed to the topic through your clients, that this is a a large change, I mean, in what you want to do with your life, right? I mean you change from wanting to do equity derivatives to wanting to do something on climate. Somehow you got seized by the problem. I mean, beyond just the opportunity for using your skills to do business. Right? Yes.
1: Yes. And and I kind of felt that I could use my skills in understanding of finance to make a meaningful change on in the space of climate. I mean, I'm I'm interested in this
0: because, you know, when I talk to scientists here, I'm always interested in how they made the decisions that got them where they are. And in particular about the tension between scientists who just like doing science because that's what they like to do and it's interesting versus ones who come at it with some sort of social consciousness, which in climate is more and more motivation, especially of younger people right now. And so I'm just interested in how you got this sort of public cause into your motivation. I mean, do you see what I'm saying? It's a, it's a change not just to get interested in a subject, but also and to think, how can I contribute to this problem in the world rather than just how can I do some financial innovation that will be interesting? You know?
1: Well, I, I would say that it is partially social, but also selfish interest, right? I felt that if at some point in time, climate finance became a big thing, you would need people to be able to do it. Right. And I could have that early mover advantage. I see. So you also saw that's a good career move. I did. I did. Which it was. I mean. <laughs> uh, I I wouldn't say. We, we'll have to see how it plays out. But yes, it was not so much for deliberate choice. At that point, I didn't have a clear career path out uh. there. But I kind of felt that this could be a, a direction.
0: Yeah. And so remind me which master's program
1: it was at Columbia. that came I came to... to the program in economic policy management, PEPM, at SEPA. Oh, okay. But they allowed me sort of the flexibility to do a dual concentration in energy and economic policy. Courses were more tuned towards financial markets mm-hmm. on interest rates, commodity derivatives, and currency derivatives, and, and macroeconomics, and so on. It's, it's a mid-career program. So it's it's I only see. about 15 months,
0: uh-huh.
1: but you start with macroeconomics, you also microeconomics, uh, and and so on. But also developmental policy, etc. Courses were there. So I could take development policy courses. I could take economic policy courses, and then also do energy policy and finance related courses. So I did courses around financing of clean energy. Right. and climate finance and things like that and i wanted to sort of take that theory take that practical knowledge and also my background in in financial markets and mix it with the existing theory as it was evolving in a place like sepa right and and bring those things together was so, my intention so you
0: i mean you had this idea that you could do something interesting in in climate and you sort of did you
1: already know about this program or you looked around and saw what is, who's doing what that's relevant to climate and exactly i think energy policy was a new concentration yeah in this this prep and program has been on for many years i think from 1992 or or some okay. such time okay. but energy policy was a new concentration within mm. with the, for the program so i looked at this program i looked at a program in size and both had similar approaches, and I got admission to both, but I decided to come to Columbia. Good,
0: good for us. Had you been to the U.S. before? Had you been?
1: Um, I no. I actually came to the U.S. when I was at Climate Works, and when I came there, we had a donor roundtable here in New York. Uh. So that's when I uh, and I I had meetings in D.C. as well during the trip. So I went and met professors and the director of the programs at SAIS and SIPA.
0: i see so you were already thinking about it at that So
1: time. Uh, yes so so my idea was to understand what what exists and then after i went back from that trip i said okay i i think i need i want to go to one of these places mm. and sort of concretize my learning of working at climate works and, and take it to the next level so how was it your time in at columbia it was nice it was very interesting the conversations are really good it one of the things which i'm using in my work now one of the courses i took was on systems thinking i'm
0: still not sure i really know what this means it still confuses me It just the system thinking means something other than lots of things are connected together and
1: Indeed, if you want to put it in a layman's word, is a, a holistic approach to any problem where you clearly look at the problem and then say, what's the end goal I want to achieve, right? Let's look at climate change mitigation. What is it that we are trying to achieve? Yes. We want to limit emissions to X number of tons a year yes. at the lowest cost possible. Yes. That's the end goal. So if you work from that end goal backwards. Yes. Everything that you do needs to. Every moment links back to that goal, and if it doesn't, then you don't do it. It sounds like practicality. <laughs> <laughs> it is, <laughs> yeah. It but it's like a fancy nice word for Fancy word for <laughs> <laughs> practicality, true. <too. laughs> um,
0: but yeah. Okay, great. So, uh, fifteen months, and then you never left, right? I mean, you or you have you been in New York since then? Um, I
1: worked remember. here for a year, uh, okay. doing or jobs, <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, consulting uh, kind of things. Um, looking for work uh, because it's not easy as a, you know, as a student on a one-year visa. Yes,
0: yes. I think
1: it's called F1 visa, uh, yes. which allows me to work for a year on OPT. So I work with a couple of entities because I was coming from the space of de- development for the last two and a half years with climate and so on. Mm-hmm. One of the things I got very interested in was impact investing yeah again it was another area which was just sort of taking off and there was a course at columbia that i took on impact investing
0: yes impact investing you're thinking about it in more dimensions than just
1: what the return will be you are thinking the financial return would be right so you're looking at societal impact right
0: is there is it is it this does it mean the same thing as esg or does it mean something different
1: i think esg is a new sort of new term and I don't think it captures impact investing. Okay. But I don't think that the way impact investing is also being looked at captures impact investing. Okay. <laughs> and and let me let me sort of say why why I say that is because the hope of impact investments is that there is some this is some kind of a silver bullet that if we go to investors and say your investment is going to make a positive societal impact, somehow their return expectations would change and it will be lower so they will be willing to take more risk. Right. And I think this is more hypothetical than or or more sort of delusionary uh, than it actually will be. If we really want that to happen, then that means it needs a lot more of consultation and capacity building of investors to understand that that's what the expectation is and then see if they will really do it. Wait, are you saying that you don't have to sacrifice
0: return for impact No, you goals? have to. Yeah,
1: yeah. You have to. I think that that goes to a bigger question. What is meant by return expectation? Yes. And return expectation is not a standardized term. Everybody has a different return expectation. You and I have a different return expectation for the investment that we make. So every investor on the planet will have a different return expectation. So we cannot generalize investing as a term in itself. Mm. And so saying that, we can generalize impact investing is also delusionary in the same sense right every investor has their own expectation of returns and same way they will all have their own expectation of impact
0: right but if your goal is to maximize the financial return at all costs then it stands to reason that if you add another goal of some other kind of impact it it may you know you may have to compromise on the on the, on first the financial line. return right and yes. this is the political debate now that you know, we have one party that says pension funds shouldn't do ESG because it's you know may reduce their return and they have a fiduciary responsibility not to do that. Whereas the pension funds
1: may say, no, we actually want to invest in reducing carbon emissions or whatever. I think this goes to the heart of something different, actually. That's why ESG and impact are different because ESG is only looking at environmental, so social and governance. Mm. I think there are elements of work that can go fall outside of these, but they capture quite a few things. Yeah, those are pretty big. Uh, they they are pretty big in itself. And they have their own definitions as well. I think it goes to the conversation between shareholder returns and stakeholder returns.
0: Mm.
1: So I think instead of just my personal view is that instead of calling something impact or trying to push impact investment, we should try to talk about stakeholder returns
0: mm-hmm.
1: because when we start talking about stakeholder returns then the conversation shifts to the extent that then everybody is become so in most cases everybody is a stakeholder right so for let's take an example of a pension fund if we have a pension fund in in say the state of new york which is you which will pay pension to individuals who work for new york state who are contributing to it on an everyday basis. And then this conversation that whether New York State Pension Fund should invest in fossil or not, Mm. should not be a a determination which comes out of the people in the pension fund entity that is set up to manage the pension fund, but it's actually a conversation of all of New York State's population that is contributing to it, right? Yes. So if they invest in fossil fuels, which make New York City's air more polluted. Yes, which leads to health costs. Yes, to the same pensioners who are contributing to that pension fund. Right. Then the pension fund should not be investing in the fossil fuels. Right. Which is leading to that outcome. Right. Because that because it's it they so while they are trying to maximize the return for the pensioners. Right. From the investment they make out of the pension fund, right. but if the pensioner is ending up paying more healthcare cost right. than what they will get out of that one percent extra return or five percent extra return when they retire, yeah, then does they need to make that determination?
0: Right. But the but my understanding is that the pension funds and you know corporate boards in general have have charters that say they're supposed to look at return very narrowly, right? In other words, this is a this view is expanding the I remember was it Jamie Dimon or whoever made this famous statement a couple of years ago that you know we should redefine the the fiduciary responsibility to this broader way that it's a change right it's not a it's a change of, of uh, orientation for, the, for exactly. these organizations
1: so so I think de- defining that return from instead of calling it impact investment if we start looking at it instead of shareholder returns stakeholder returns yes which broadens the people who are impacted by the return that the entity makes, right, will be a more comprehensive, yes, approach. Yes. To so it. I'm, Other,
0: yeah, I'm just pointing, out, but that does, but, but at least in some cases that does require some formal change to the guidelines of whatever indeed. organization is doing indeed. It
1: does. Yeah. It yeah. does. Uh, and I think the only way it is work. So I'll, I'll take. I won't name this entity. There is this entity which invest took some. Which is investing in 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 say fossil, etc. But the pensioners, for example, can raise their voices, and they have saying that you should not, and which is what has led to that entity move away from fossil. Right, right. Because at the same time, the the pension fund managers many time in, invest in high, and and last twelve years have been uh, demonstrative of that is because the returns. There was so much liquidity in the market that there were very few places that pension funds could make returns. So they've gone and taken very high-risk bets, mm. which pensioners don't want right. at the same time. So that narrative is not really fully true. Yeah.
0: So you got interested in this while you're doing odd jobs
1: on your, on your OPT uh, visa. And so then what happens? So I work... With, with a couple of entities, which are doing impact investing. And what got into my head at that time was that if you want to do, let's say, keep it impact investing, maybe there is a way to go to investors and say that your financial returns are say 10% in dollar terms, let's say that's their that expectation. If we find a methodology to put a dollar number to impact, mm then it will be an easier case probably mm. to go and convince those in- investors saying that, hey, you wanted a 10% financial return, but what we are instead offering you is a 11% overall return, mm. which is 8.5% financial return and 2.5% impact return. Mm. And so th- uh, this is something that I think there are lots of people who criticize this approach saying that, that means that you will start putting dollars to social problems. I mean, it is that But transparently, but... It is exactly, <laughs> it, exactly. So, so if the social problems exist and the only way they can be solved is with finance, right. then putting a dollar number at least makes it transparent. Right of what the cost of those social problems are. Right.
0: My understanding that this is the field called welfare economics, where they put every kind of social good into, try to measure it in dollars. I mean, it's not, welfare economics is nece- not necessarily about investment return, but it's... Probably, but it's, I, I'm not aware of that. Yeah.
1: I, I have to say that I'm ignorant of if there there is something like that which <laughs> exists. <laughs> but it came out of those, those classes that I took at Columbia around impact investment. That, okay. you know, you could create a financial model, but capture impact returns.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so were you able to do this in one of these places? I've been trying to. Wherever I, anybody asks me, I try to sort of see if I can get that, incorpor- that thought process incorporated. And I try to bring it in every conversation I do with investors or, or other people. Try to bring this thought process. It's not easy. Yeah. Uh, either to have the conversation or to create that model. Right. So you were thinking about this while moving from job to job
0: sounds like yes. And then and...
1: so, uh, so for a couple of years I I did sort of similar things. So I w- worked for a a startup, a Silicon Valley startup which was hmm. trying to do financial inclusion in emerging markets. Hmm. So again impact was really at the forefront of their work. Mm. And then I moved to Canada uh, and I worked for the, the the Canadian government had set up a clean tech fund to invest in Canadian clean tech companies. Mm. So with my banking knowledge and investment knowledge and my understanding of climate mm-hmm. and, and all the different technologies and, and the efforts around energy efficiency and, and so on, I tried to do that uh, there. And then mm. I came to the to UNCDF after that.
0: Okay, so how did that happen?
1: So I, I was doing that, and then uh, this role came about, which wanted to sort of have somebody who had understanding of finance, partnerships, and sales, and climate. So somehow you you saw this, or you were in some circle where you were aware of all these. Yeah, things. Yeah. So and I I kind of got to know. I applied. I got the role. Yeah, and
0: we should say what UNCDF is, because probably most people. Have yeah, never it's one heard of, of, of the it.
1: smaller UN organizations. It's called UN Capital Development Fund. It primarily works in the least developed countries, which are sort of the world's poorest countries with GDPs less than a thousand dollars per annum uh, per capita GDP mm. that's in the charter or something, yeah, so that's that's in the mandate that we uh. primarily work in in those markets. um but what we've had as an organization is this mandate to do sort of financing as well, which other u n organizations don't have financing as well as. Aid. A- exactly. So do Aid is you of give of the money directly and finance. Kind of grants, but here we can do sort of loans and things, yeah, things of that nature, investments kind of things as well, mm. uh, which we had not used for a long time. It has always been there as a mandate since 66 the organization was started. But we sort of, have, I think the organization put together a team in 2017 to start focusing on this element of our work. And when did you start this? I started in end of 2019s in fall of 2019.
0: Oh, okay. So, right. Uh, I met you not long after that. And your job is also
1: partnerships? Yes, it's partnerships. And uh, then also sort of think of new structures around innovative finance. So those two are sort of part of my terms of references. Partnerships means more with the private sector, but also traditional donors and so on.
0: Right. You ra- uh, you've told me before that you raised some money from governments exactly but for, it's for not only work. that it's also
1: philanthropic or yes so sometimes it's philanthropies um and and government and so on
0: and so the innovative financial products this is where Silver came about did you is this the main one do you have other ones or this is no
1: the... this is the the only one i focus on
0: for three years and did you have this idea before arriving or how, tell me how this well so you should say what it is in a minute but first say like where it came from and then
1: so so when i joined UNCDF in in 2019, uh, October, we had this retreat and uh, my boss sort of was having this side conversation with one of our colleagues who works on with local governments. And he posed the problem to my boss that can we look at some kind of social impact bonds or development bonds to help local governments, cities and, and local area governments get financing when they get hit by a climate event. So that's how it started. So he posed this problem, can we create some kind of a structure, development bond, social impact bond, Mm -hmm. which which started around 2014, 15.
0: With a city focus already. But
1: with the focus of local governments getting some kind of a return, which will help them rebuild when they get hit by a climate event.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So this sort of came from, so SILRIF's, came out of that original problem statement.
0: Why do you think the problem statement was focused on local governments?
1: Because this, this colleague leads that work. I see. He's, he's, his focus that is local... his focus area of work. I see. And, um, and so he was trying to find innovative finance because he comes more from the development space, but my role was to sort of help the organization think of other ways from a finance standpoint to create innovative financial structures to solve some of the problems that they might, they think that might be solved by finance. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, so we've been working up to this. So now why don't you explain what the
1: idea is and I guess spell out the acronym too. Sure, so SILRIF stands for Climate Insurance Linked Resilient Infrastructure Finance. And it didn't start like that. That was not the intention. As I said, the idea was to look at some kind of a social impact bond to solve that problem. And in order to research around this problem and what existed in the market around social impact bond, I kind of went a little deep into understanding the social impact bond market. I knew about it from my studies at Columbia as well in theory. And then over the last three, four years, it had sort of slightly taken off. But what I realized was in that research was that social impact bonds, majority of them were being done in developed countries yes context for some of the impact related payouts when you had a problem and you, the problem got solved there was a payout which came from a donor mm-hmm. that compensated the investors mm-hmm. for the return essentially. so some some investor put in the initial money you use that money to solve a social problem and then the donors paid that some additional money that went into increasing or enhancing the returns of the impact investors but there is only so much donor money available right And so if you were to solve a problem like that, it would be very hard to do. And also I looked at sort of the history and in 2019, I don't know what the numbers are now, total amount of social impact bonds were between 300 and 400 million dollars globally. Not much. Which was not significant. And most of it was for problems in the developed country context. Right. So for the developing country context, it was even smaller. Right. And the problem, at least originally how it was defined, to me looked like a very big problem. And then I started sort of these conversations to understand how big the problem was and what were the other solutions which existed.
0: Mm-hmm. The problem being defined as funding to
1: recover from disasters and build
0: more resilient infrastructure. Is that the definition of the problem? or
1: No. So at that time, the problem was only to finance the liquidity need of the city when to recover from a Climate event, okay. But then, when I started looking at it, I said that's that's a very short-term thinking, and that's where my systems thinking things comes back. Right. Well, I I was looking at okay. So if you give if a hurricane hits a city, and you somehow uh, philanthropist pays for recovery of that city or local municipality or a community or an island, that doesn't solve the problem. Another hurricane you'll again need that same money, right? Right. So how do you fix the problem that exists? Yeah. And the problem was not only the liquidity problem, mm. the problem was that we are not prepared for climate events that are going to happen. Yeah. So So if we want to have our communities safer, the end objective that we should have is we should prepare for these events. Yes over the course of next 50, 70 years, or, or at least that, till yes. till the end of the century, or till the time we figure out how, what are we going to do with the emissions, and then the impact of that starts to show up. Yes. So we need to have resilient yes. communities. Yes, I mean, this is called climate adaptation.
0: I I mean, I like to bring this up because I think actually in the U.S. political context where climate is still uh, you know a divisive uh, a topic that causes some disagreement... I think it's worth saying that you don't have to believe in any particular projection of climate change or its impact on extreme events to think that investing in more resilient cities is worthwhile because it's, there's no loss. I mean, you could argue we're under adapted for the historical climate already, right? We're not adequately prepared for extreme events. So it's not a, to want to do this kind of thing, you don't have to have any particularly precise belief in any particular climate projection. Right. That, that's why I, I quibble about
1: this. So. Yeah. <laughs> right but it so so but but to, for the stakeholders it's important why we are doing it now right yes yes why now yes why and there I'm,
0: is an increasing risk due to climate that's true yes right In, so there is America. an
1: increasing risk and we are seeing increased climate events also so that's why why now and and i think that's where the the thinking is that so what's the end goal yes end goal is resilient cities whatever that means for that city right but you need to define that for every city on the planet Yes. What is the risk what is the extreme climate risk they are most exposed to? Yes. We, we don't want to look at financing for regular floods that happen which happen which have been happening every year in certain cities all the time, right? Yes. But looking at a 200-year flood cycle yeah. which will have a devastating effect on a community, how do you protect from that? Yes. And actually if you protect from that then you will automatically reduce the damage from regular floods. In general, yes. At least at a high level, that the end goal is really to make cities resilient from extreme climate events. Good. And so that became the problem statement subsequently. Yes. And so then we started within the working group, which you're part of, Adam, uh, and you have helped convince different stakeholders of why they should be continue to par- be part of this, is that SILRIF is an attempt to approach the problem in a more holistic manner.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because there are different elements and, and different stakeholders are ad- are taking different sort of approaches to climate adaptation and and those pieces of work are equally important. But what the original intention of this work was that those things will keep happening, but there has to be, because the problem is so huge, we have to have a very... Strategic, thoughtful, systemic approach to this problem. Problem while finding the solution.
0: Right, and so why don't you say what the approach is? We haven't said that yet.
1: So, so Silrif is essentially breaking down that problem, right? The resilient cities are is our goal. Yes. And when I say resilient cities, it actually means two things, which we have sort of evolved to saying right now. And it was not originally; it was more climate resilient cities. But what we have realized is that if cities are not resilient to climate change, they are actually financially vulnerable as well. And what does that mean? It means that when extreme climate events happen, there is immediate need of liquidity, which was the original problem that you remember we were talking about, sort of the development impact bond was supposed to pay for. Yes. And if nobody is there to pay for that, then actually the city is going to use resources that it had set aside or was expecting in the future to today. Right. So if if the city gets impacted by a by a by a flood or or a heat wave, whatever it is, they are essentially compromising on future development, right? By taking away resources from the future and putting it into present to rebuilding, right? Assuming it all comes out of their budgets, it has to come out of their budget. Well, or, I mean, in
0: the U the federal government could bail them out in the U S. That happens sometimes. But, yes,
1: yeah. but even if the federal <laughs> government is bailing it out, federal government is then taking money out of future yes, investments yes, into the right. country yes. and putting it into today. It yes. doesn't matter who's doing whose right. pocket it, the money is coming it, exactly. out of. Yes. Essentially, we are compromising our future to rebuild our present yes. because of events which we have no control over. Right. Right? Yes. So we need to find a solution which will give pay for liquidity, a solution that will ensure that future tax revenues or future income streams of cities are not compromised. hmm And then give them an incentive to invest in resiliency. Mm -hmm. Investing in resiliency comes with its own challenges. And there are multiple layers of challenges for resiliency. So first of all, defining resiliency interventions is hard in general. If you are able to define it, most of the time it costs a lot of money as well, which you had not planned for or you were not thinking of. The third is that the uncertainty of climate event against which you are going to build resilience, infrastructure or resiliency, because they are uncertain, it's harder to make a case for that to all the stakeholders. So there is lack of political will for that.
0: Yes. I mean here resilience means actual infrastructure changes. To yes. To make them more able to withstand events. Exactly. And we so we could call it adaptation. I mean you're not using resilience really differently from some it's... some some theorists believe these are different things, but in this context they are interchangeable yeah.
1: they are so from adaptation is or, or climate part of the resiliency is the same as adaptation but there is the financial resilience element also so when i say resilient cities i am meaning both i don't think adaptation can be financial too but okay so essentially yes we are adapting We're using to, the same words a, exactly yeah, different so words it is it part. is a, in in that sense adaptation and and ensuring that adaptation means being resilient not just to extreme climate event but also financially resilient yeah as a society, as a city. Yeah. Okay, so now how are we gonna achieve these things? So so the thought process is that because there is one other element which we which has come out as a side effect of this conversation around SilRif is that if we are able to achieve all the objectives of SilRif, we will also be able to find a way to price physical climate risk. Mm. And get that embedded into our financial models that right. we that everybody uses for financing. Right.
0: So here we should we should pause and say that uh, that you know in the, in the climate world we talk about mitigation and adaptation. So mitigation, uh, which is used here in the opposite sense from how the engineers use it, means uh, reducing carbon emissions or eliminating carbon emissions. And adaptation is just dealing with the consequences of climate change. And so mitigation, you know, you talked about uh, carbon trading schemes earlier. That's the idea is you put a price on carbon. If you can reduce emissions by one ton, you get so many dollars. And although that is complicated because to say how what you did really reduced emissions is sometimes tricky. You know, if you plant the tree, would you really not have planted it otherwise and all these messy things. But at some level, a ton of carbon is a ton of carbon once it gets in the atmosphere, at least. So there's a unit to measure it, whereas physical climate risk because it has to do with damage to stuff or people on the ground, it doesn't really have a unique... I mean, you can ultimately measure anything in dollars, I guess, but how to turn the actual physical risk into dollars is a tricky thing. So that's a problem you're... I mean, this is an unsolved problem more broad than just SILRIF.
1: Indeed, yeah. and, and I think if we are able to execute silriff properly, then we should be able to come up with at least a model to start pricing that. Yeah. Because if the whole idea of SILRIF is that SILRIF, when it is set up as an entity, it will provide long-term fixed-price climate insurance to cities, and then the premiums of the insurance product will reduce once the city has invested in resilient infrastructure and it is up and running, right? So, for example, if the city has to build a seawall to reduce its risk, once the seawall is ready, then the premium should come down. Now, the question is whether the premiums come down by $10 or $10 million yes. is essentially the value of that seawall. Yes. So if you are able to price that, that's a first step yeah, okay, in pricing but, physical climate risk.
0: Okay, but so so we're doing multiple. So, so you now just said a few sentences of which the first one was the essential idea of silver. So should we spend a little more time on it so sure. listening can actually understand it? So The first part of it is long-term fixed price insurance so why don't you talk about a little bit first of all this is insurance we're talking about not bonds so that's the change for your initialized bonds is basically debt right and insurance is not it's insurance and long-term fixed price is actually i mean it sounds like humble words but it's actually very radical right for the insurance industry it's very radical and the insurance industry needs to
1: you know needs to buy into this if it's going to work so why don't you sure say talk about that so so the only fixed price insurance that exists is life insurance Right, because the models for life insurance are much more evolved. So the insurance industry, in most part of the world, offers a fixed price insurance product. You know how much you will get paid when the person passes away, but you have annual premiums, and they don't change year to year. Right. For life insurance policies. Right. Well, Health all other kinds of insurance have fixed price, but maybe only for a year. Only for a year. And then exactly. It, then it can go up or whatever. Exactly so health insurance is another example which is on the other extreme which is annually renewed and based on what you did what you didn't do the premiums go up and down mostly up but sometimes down if you're if you're uh, exercising or whatever right so mm-hmm. that is an example where insurance premiums could potentially go down if your health data is better yes. than in the previous year right right so picking up on that concept and, and then the idea was that if you have to incentivize something, somebody to do something, there should be a way to measure it, right? right? So if you have to incentivize a city to invest in resiliency, and resiliency interventions don't come with retur- fixed returns. So because a seawall doesn't have a, most of the time will not have a cash flow associated with it. So why should an investor invest in seawall? Or why should a city invest in seawall either? Because the results are not to be seen immediately. You don't know how much reduction in risk is happening. So unless you put a value to that, it's difficult. Yes. Right? So the whole idea of fixed price in long term was for two reasons. One was that if it is fixed price, then if it comes down, you know how much it came down to. If it is variable every year, then you don't know what the baseline is. Right. So the idea of fixed price was really it sets a baseline. Yes. So then if there is any adjustment, you know and you can measure how much benefit you've had with respect to baseline. Yes. And then you can create a present value of that and then show to the shareholders or the stakeholders that this is the present value of the savings you will get if you invested in Seawall. Yes. Out of that insurance product alone.
0: Yes. So the radical thing you were talking about how apart from life insurance, most are annual contracts with variable prices and property and casualty insurance is one of those and as is reinsurance which is the big global you know thing so so uh, first of all most cities now don't have insurance on their infrastructure no, mostly indeed. it's self-insured I mean they just yes. hope they'll have the capital to fix stuff if it breaks.
1: I want to talk a little bit about that self-insured part. Okay. I, I would say that self-insured the word self-insured and I, I have learned it over the last three years because I didn't know about it before starting work on CELRIF is Self-insured is sort of delusionary.
0: Well, it really right? means
1: uninsured. But It's, it's uninsured. <laughs> well, it, or it could mean, insured. I mean, it depends how people are
0: planning for the eventualities. I mean, it could be that they have put a lot of money in the bank in case, because uh, I, they know there
1: is some risk, they might
0: have to deal with something. And...
1: Yeah, but that, that could be, like, the, the, if there is money in the bank, it could be used for so many other purposes. So essentially, it is uninsured, and then when a crisis happens, you really say that I'm going to use that money, and you say that I'm self-insured. Right. Okay. It's it's like if I if I don't have an insurance coverage but I have a ba- saving in my bank account and I have to go to the hospital and I pay for it then I am also self-insured. Right. Essentially I'm uninsured. Right. I'm I'm going to use away my savings or my income right to pay for the impact as well.
0: So cities are self-insured or I mean they basically don't have a external insurance for against disasters in most cases in most parts of the world but if they wanted to it would be one-year contracts, which they wouldn't know how the price is going to change. So that might be part of the reason why they don't do it. And in particular, there's a concern with climate change that, as well as other reasons for change in risk, like increasing development, that if they were to try to use insurance as a method to um, offer some stability and some you know, risk, risk transfer uh, against the risk they have, that at any time the risk could the price could go way up or the insurer could decide they don't want to be in this market anymore and quit.
1: Uh, Which is what is happening in, in some of the markets in, in, in west on the west coast of the United States, right? Property insurance, etc. Yes, People have been outpriced of it or people are not refusing to buy it because it becomes so expensive.
0: Well, what happens in the US is the state tries to force the insurers to do it, but that only works so well because they don't let them charge the the market rate. The market rate. And yeah, so the reinsurers are thinking about, you know, after Hurricane Ian thought about bailing out of Florida, which, I mean, they haven't quite done. But, you know, there's all these discussions. So they, so that's the problem. And then the radical thing of Sildreth is to say, let's give them a 10-year or a 20-year contract with a Indeed. fixed price. Indeed. So that's a big change. So they will have some stability. It might be a higher price than if it was one year because the insurer doesn't have the, you know, knows they can't get out of it. So they're going to charge more for that. But... But it gives the city some stability for that period of time where they know how much they're paying and how much the payout will be for whatever the trigger is, whether it's parametric or it's, you know, loss-based, you know, indemnity uh, coverage or whatever. However, the, the the contract is written, they know what the terms are, they know what the price is. And that's the first thing. And then the second thing, as you've been describing, is that then if they want to build a seawall or whatever the resilience measure is, um, if... Then, in print, then they can go to the insurer and say look we did this and they will get a re- reduction in the premium so that reduction is like real money in other words now if i if i'm the city agency that wants to build the seawall and i go to the my bosses the elected officials or whoever they are and i say we want to build this seawall and the benefit to the city is that it will reduce our expected loss over some time i mean sometime in the future we'll probably get hit by a flood and so this you know you can annualize it and say how much we're getting back but that's rather theoretical I mean, to the elected official whose term is short, whereas now, if they're already paying insurance and they're getting a break on that insurance, it's real money. I mean, that's real money, so that gives the people who want to do the adaptation or the resilience measures a way to actually fund it that's you know uh, much more concrete indeed is, is that a fair
1: no, that's that's indeed and and the the additional this f part of SILRIF mm. is that. Ideally, if a city buys that long term climate insurance, then investors who are financing the city's development or plans, infrastructure plans or or developmental plans, they should also give the benefit to the city because the tax revenues or whatever they're going to use to pay for those debt that exists on the city's balance sheet are getting reduced. Mm -hmm. There is more certainty on the tax revenues not being used for recovery from a climate event. Mm. So, additionally, the city's financing cost should also come down the day they buy the insurance, and then the second time when they, the seawall is ready. Mm. So, they get the insurance reduction, but they also get the f- reduction in their cost of financing. Mm. So, SILRIF will essentially be a, again, it's a holistic solution to the city that it will provide insurance, ensure that there is a value associated to the resiliency intervention from the reduced insurance premium, but also reduce financing cost. So right. more and more cities around the planet will look at this model and say, I can reduce my financing cost if I invest in resiliency as well. And I buy that insurance.
0: Yeah. And so um, so where are we? So you you started this idea, I don't know. In
1: 2019 i guess 2020 january yeah is the first time i had a conversation about this you idea.
0: started a working group which i ended up joining i don't know six months after the beginning or something and you've had you know we had calls for a few years with various people in the insurance industry a couple of academics uh development people engineers i can't think of who all you've had involved and so where do you want to summarize what's happened and where we are now at I mean for a while it was just volunteer group talking about it and now it's sort of moving closer to things happening so
1: so what we want to do is we we, we are starting to sort of we so there are things that we need to do before this becomes a reality yeah so while in parallel we have we, we have found a couple of cities who have volunteered to work with us to define their needs and um, and and see if we can we can have a, s- a structure around this insurance product etc created with those two cities but in parallel i think the whole group agrees that a scale up of such a model is needed and we cannot we don't have the luxury of waiting 20 years to see if the insurance product really worked or not mm. because in theory it looks like a good concept uh but we what we don't have right now is one is that cities are not in a position to adopt this systemic approach towards adaptation, either due to lack of capacity or because that, that has not been a strategic priority for many cities yes. either. So, the, so many of, a lot of data that we need to define what the insurance product would be, define the financing need, define the resiliency intervention, sit in silos. So we have to work with cities to sort of bring that together and then also collect some climate data around it, which will then be used to create this new generation, essentially a climate model or insurance pricing model and a financing pricing model that can assign a value to the resiliency. Like whether the financing should go down by 50 basis when the insurance bought or 100 basis points, right? Right. We don't know that, but we have to start at some point And then we use that. So once we have that structure and model built, then we can go to the market participants and check where they are the market is expected to clear yeah uh, and i think this links back to my original work when i used to work in derivatives yes was that most of the derivative contracts are essentially built on models that people agree to and the market clears right uh because those are also very uncertain things Co- exchange rates are very volatile. Right. Interest rates are very volatile. Right. Uh, nobody knew two years ago that US dollar interest rates will be at 5%, Fed rates will be at 5% two years ago. Yes. They are more volatile than probably the what Adam can predict the climate events will be in the next two years. Yes. Uh, so if there are financial sector is using models that are not, that that are designed for uncertain events, I think we can create a model even for this. Yeah. So I mean what part
0: of what you're getting at here, I mean, the insurance industry, which would have has to be a part of this, right? This is going to be an insurance products. So the people writing the contracts have to be people in the insurance business. One,
1: and... Or at least no our actuaries who worked on insurance and, and so on. So we'll have to have a team uh, yeah. essentially of actuaries, civil engineers, financial engineers, climate modelers like yourself right. who come together to create this new generation model. Right.
0: So the, cl- the 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 insurance industry is starting to think about climate change and to model uh, you know they've had to model the risk of extreme weather events always and they use ca- things called catastrophe models which go back a few decades and now those models sort of belatedly are being updated to handle climate change but one of the problems is that here is that when you write a contract for 10 or 20 years, it's not just the problem of knowing the probability of a hurricane or whatever the event is, but also now you, compared to a one-year contract, you in principle have to account, or not just in principle, in reality, you have to account for the fact that that risk may be changing over the term, more over 10 years or 20 years than over one year. In my view, that's less of a difficult problem than it's some people have thought because 10 or 20 years is not that long from the perspective of climate change, notwithstanding that we're, you know, we have to act quickly to reduce emissions. But still, you know, it's not enough time for the planet to look completely different, barring some really scary tipping points that's always possible, but we can't predict and, you know, haven't seen yet. So, you know, that's where the climate science comes in. There has to be some slightly different modeling to write 10-year contracts than one-year contracts or... Indeed. That's not the only. I think that's not the only reason the insurance industry is uneasy about ten-year long-term contracts. It's also that just whatever they can't predict, you know, economic, uh, you know, recessions, interest rate changes, whatever, all that stuff can, you know, could make the price change if it wasn't Indeed. fixed. And so they have to think about all that all those things. So, so somebody has to price it, and then we have these two cities doing. Are we allowed to say who they are, or we shouldn't say?
1: Uh, no, I, I think uh, we, we you should say. say without sort of. Without asking, okay. (laughs) We
0: have two cities who have volunteered to sort of pilot this and think through what it would take to do it. And there's a capacity building element that you mentioned because the cities don't immediately, not having done insurance at all and not having you know priced their own risk in this way, they're not kind of uh, already in the mode of having the information ready that it would take to do this. So they have to work on that. We have to talk to them, and then in this in parallel, there's work to just set think how to set up the structure and how to make all these pieces fit together. Yes. And then there has to be financing, which I don't know what we're allowed to say about where that is. I, I think going. financing,
1: again, we we are having multiple conversations with different types of partners yes. to, to build up financing. And we're also trying, uh, speaking to sort of, uh, and we're thinking through how, sort of how we will get a structure like this up and running and who would do it. Yes. I think those are the elements where we are at this point in time trying to figure out how do we scale up this idea? Yes. Uh, Because it also needs a lot of scale. Yeah. Because every city is huge, even if you go to very emerging markets or low-income countries, the city's needs are, are significant in terms of the infrastructure that needs to be protected and the kind of liquidity needs that will happen when they get hit by a climate event. But the other important element to remember is the cost of insurance. Yeah. And you talk, talked about it earlier on the cost of insurance that it will be expensive, but we don't know how expensive it will be between one year and 10 year. But the other element to think about the cost of insurance is that if we were to give a long-term climate insurance only to one city, yeah. then it will be super expensive. Yes. Uh, because insurance and financing both work on a diversification benefits that come out of that. Yes. Of of mixing different asset classes or different types of cities in this example together. So if you were to think about if there was only one person on the planet who was going to buy health insurance right. for one disease, right. the cost of that will be the actual amount that they will get paid upfront.
0: Right. Well, right? plus also the cost of not only the diversification of having many cities involved, but also the cost of going business does down goes down because you have to set up all these structures that we're talking about you have to figure out how to do this exactly. it's going to take a lot of work so if you can do it for many cities it's at the same it, it time it will scale much better
1: it will scale but better but also it will work yeah. without having lots of cities come into this yes will ensure that it doesn't work because for two cities this product will not really work because yes. it be it it will be priced out of market yes on day 1 yes uh, no city will have the stakeholders to buy insurance which will pay them a billion dollars, but it costs them a billion dollars as well. Yes.
0: And it should be said, right, that this is not fundamentally a philanthropic scheme, right? In other words, this insurance is going to be private insurance. I mean, I guess some could be done in some public way, but it's, it, you know, the, the default is going to be private insurance that is done by for profit companies indeed with some business model exactly. but there could be philanthropy also in that
1: uh, involved in technical assistance or capacity building of cities or even de-risking for some low-income countries cities right. where we could subsidize the insurance for three five years so that they they right. understand how it works and and they right. can A donor feel could say
0: I'm gonna pay the bill for city X for, Y and Z for exactly. some period of time yeah. for
1: three years or five years but that essential idea is that this will be economically viable. And for yeah. it to be economically viable, it should have pretty, in theory, it should have all the cities on the planet that are exposed to climate risk right. should buy insurance. Right. It's just, I, I I want to say, just common sense Yes. Uh, for them to be doing that. And if they do that, then it become just like life insurance. It will become a commercial product and the entity will do its own business. So you don't even need to do technical assistance at some point because the business development team of this entity will go and try to bring more cities into the poor
0: right and and but getting back to the conversation about impact investing and esg and all of this part of the expectation here is that or not expectation the observation of what's already happening is that there there is now and will be in future a lot of money chasing investment in that ha, in positive climate goals right so and that's both mitigation reducing emissions but also adaptation and so this could be a you know, there, there could be, uh, you know, this this could be attractive to no, investors sure. with Absolutely. those
1: goals. and and I think this is where I have also brought what I talked to you about the dollarizing value of impact. Yes. In this case, it it is already done. Yes. Because the value of Seawall wall or the reduced premium is essentially the impact.
0: Yeah. Right, but the but this is going to be a way that's going to put dollars on in a way that's not just apparent to not just appearing in a statement to an investor but it's actually appearing in the operations of the city the yeah. operations of, of the, the insurance
1: product and the cities and yeah. and so we have dollarized impact and the impact can be valued right uh both by the city but also by the investors
0: yeah so on what time frame do you think this is will happen. It seems to me that the momentum is picking up and there's all these details we can't talk about because because there are actually things happening that you know we, we don't want to speak without the permission
1: of the partners. But, I mean... My hope is that by end of this year we should at least have the structure of the entity um, and also start already working with uh, we, we have enough funding that can help us start working with 20 to 30 cities this year alone. Mm-hmm. If we can to sort of uh, do their capacity building and technical assistance for them to think about it while the structure gets set up. And then we, we fundraise from investors for providing that insurance product. So I would think that the whole thing or the first insurance product should be issued sometime next year or, or, or so. Oh, that's soon. Uh, for, for the, for the, over, not the not the pilot or the use cases but more for the facility itself by end of mm. next year 2024 or early 2025 we should have sort of the first set of insurance products issued and financing provided right uh, to the first set of cities uh, which I I if I were to sort of put a number to it in five years we would like to do 100 cities wow globally. Wow. uh to be able to buy this product and and also start investing in the resiliency.
0: Wow. And UNCDF will be a partner in this but can't really do it right? It's is a this is a business venture and UNCDF. We doesn't.
1: we normally so what our role will be to do a lot of technical assistance and capacity building with the cities and hmm. other partners uh, working with other partners are, or also directly but we have uh helped set up similar structures in the past which are blended finance structures where um, we are the pipeline provider. In this case, the cities are the pipeline for the private entity yeah. that's set up and, and we have provided some initial capital at times, or we have worked with donors who have channeled their initial capital or risk-taking capital through UNCDF into those entities because we are allowed to work with private sector yeah. as, as, a, as a UN organization. Yeah. Um, but obviously we have, we have to follow certain processes, et cetera, to identify those entities but we are allowed to do that. So our role will be really to find that entity, which is willing to set this up and, and so on. And then we work with cities to bring them into this, yeah, uh, in, into this structure. And then we let the private entity sort of do it after that uh, yeah. on its own at some point.
0: Yeah. So, I, so my role, as you've said a couple of times, so I joined this working group early on. I guess it's been, I don't know, has it been three years now?
1: Almost. It's been almost two and a half, three years. Yeah.
0: And for a while, it was, I still is, I mean, a volunteer working group where we would just meet every, I don't know, few weeks or a month or two and talk about these things. I thought it's actually quite amazing that how you were able to keep this group together with zero dollars. And I mean, everybody, I guess, just thought it was a good idea or at least an interesting idea. And for me, I got excited about it. uh well i in the, in the in, it was interesting from the beginning because i've been interacting with the insurance industry and stuff and looking for ways to do more with our science um but then i read ministry for the future the the book by kim stanley robinson that's had a lot of um drawn a lot of readers in the climate science business and everywhere else around that and it's essentially a a near future sort of speculative but not very speculative fiction uh, novel about climate finance. I mean, if, if you can imagine a sort of exciting novel about climate finance, that's what it is. And the inherent idea—I don't want to do the whole spoiler if anybody hasn't read it—but the, the 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 sort of heroic uh, uh, success of the book comes around figuring out how to build long timescales into the climate system. The problem, as we've been, is is that our financial system and economic system rewards short-term you know, return and and doesn't know how to value the long term, and that's the that's the problem because climate is an inherently long term problem. And so the 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 trick is, you know, some financial innovations that will make the financial system care about outcomes in the long term. And Silverif is explicitly doing that because that's it's
1: very generous of you well <laughs> it is because
0: well because it's because it's you know the normal contract is one year now we're trying to make it 10 years or 20 years so it's it's tr- you know it's, it's quite clear that it's that kind of thing i mean obviously i'm not saying it's saving the world in the scale of what happens in the, this book but that's that's the idea so i i've been very attracted to it and so i i i told you this and you read the book and it and i had forgotten that the beginning of the book is a heat wave in now exactly. So, you, <laughs> you <laughs> indeed did he write well about the story about the city? Did it did it uh, strike you as because a lot of this book is actually takes place in Zurich, Switzerland? And I thought he wrote beautifully about Zurich, which is not a city that has that many novels, at least in English, about it. I don't, yeah. I don't know about Lucknow,
1: but it... I, I think it starts in Lucknow, but then it goes into the rest of India. So, but it, it did, it did indeed start in in Lucknow as well. Uh, yeah, and yeah, these kids the, the... who are gangsters or something in the town. Yes, I, it starts in in. I don't remember the exact details of it because it's been almost two years since I read it. But yes, uh, it it does start in in Lucknow indeed. Yeah. Uh, in, uh, there is a heat wave happening, and and the funny part of that book actually, when I was reading that book. Lucknow was actually experiencing the heat waves at that moment. Oh, it was the terrible North India one of a couple of years? Ah, the... uh, August twenty twenty one or or July twenty something like that. And uh. I was I started reading the book and then some I saw a news article around the time I was still reading the book. Yeah, which talked about extreme heat wave in in the same place. Yes, yes. So it was quite. It didn't look like it was futuristic at all. <laughs>
0: Well, the one in the book is, I mean, the one that happened in reality was quite awful. The one in the book was in order of mag- I mean, is really like catastrophic uh, to a degree that I
1: don't think we've seen yet on planet earth. but but, uh, yeah, it was very ominous for me. It was just too ominous. Uh, when when reading the book, and I saw that at the same time I was here in the in the u s, but it was happening back home, and I was reading the book, and it was just ominous. Yes, you're right. It was not at the same scale. But it was close, yeah so I mean this this
0: 10 year or 20 year contracts is a radical thing, but it uh, that at least in the early conversations the insurers weren't particularly enthusiastic about because it's because they don't do it for almost anything except life insurance as you said but it seems like maybe it's going to happen now huh?
1: yeah. well, fingers crossed, hopefully we can we can all work together and and create something which which, yeah, is long-term in, in nature and, and can uh, address this long-termism that we talk about, which is really needed, not just on climate, but overall, I think, in in our thinking on, on finance and economics.
0: Yeah. What else should we say about it? Any other things we didn't cover?
1: No, I think we, we covered pretty much. Thank you, Adam, for having me. It Great. was nice to have this conversation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and thank you for being sort of, consistent part of the work at If I, I really appreciate it. I think it's some of your comments have really helped move things along and I, I keep saying that and I'll keep saying that. <laughs> um some of the examples that you gave during those discussions have really helped us move in this direction. So thank you for that as well.
0: Well that's very kind. It's uh you know, it's nice to feel that we as scientists can sometimes contribute something
1: outside of our limited sphere of influence. I think we have to start listening to scientists a lot more and work with them to create these these real world solutions, which are based on science.
0: Well, and I think the scientists have to also take the time and effort to engage outside of our laboratories to understand, you know, the needs and uses of science outside, so that we so that we can contribute something that's relevant. And not just say, here, look at the stuff I did, it should be useful to you. Right? I mean, we have to learn what's actually the need is. And I think that's it's a two way street. You know. I think people have should listen to scientists, but scientists should listen to people also. To
1: no, no, indeed. And, and I want to make a plug to on that note to something broader. I think problems like climate change and some of the other are are so huge that one or two people or one or two organizations cannot solve it. It has to be a a sort of a joint effort across organizations. And I, in my mind, when setting up SILRIV, it was that idea that it cannot be solved by one stakeholder or the other, or just two stakeholders. It has to be a broader group that has to come together to create a solution that works for everybody. But yes. it solves a much bigger problem that is beyond individual organizations, individual persons, or even individual countries in that in some sense, right and, and I think that is very important to sort of work together with 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 multiple stakeholders right from the beginning of conceptualization, yeah, because once you design something in your room or office and then it it feels like you're pushing down somebody's throat that they they were not part of
0: well, I think there's yeah, so the other so I was saying a minute ago how. Scientists would get outside of our our laboratories and our academic institutions and learn about the real world problems to which our science might be relevant. But the the but the other side of that, uh, because we have a, you know our audience, I think for this podcast is mostly scientists, including a lot of young ones, is that sometimes because in 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 academia, which every working scientist has spent a lot of their time in academic institutions, if not all of it we we train very hard to become experts at a very narrow thing and so we have a very high standard for uh you know what our knowledge should be of a subject before we engage with it and we go through peer review where we're fighting with the experts in our in our narrow field and so people who come through that system have a tendency to think i can't get involved in this other thing because i don't know about it the way i know about my science it's too you know it's outside my Uh, I'll be ignorant, you know, and I won't be able to contribute in the way that I'm used to contributing. And the part of what you said that, you know, triggered me to say this, I mean, people have to get over that in the sense that when you say that it requires a broad team, it means that these problems are so big that nobody knows all about it. Nobody knows all the things. Indeed. So it's, everybody is coming in from a place of ignorance to some extent. And I think that's an uncomfortable place for people who have come Through an academic system you know to the point of getting a phd sometimes to to accept that because they've worked hard to overcome their ignorance they don't want to go back there uh of course in research we're always learning something new but we're learning it in an area that we're well trained so i think the a thing scientists have to do to get engaged in these things and for me this has been fun but you know maybe it's not fun for you know for everybody all the time you have to be a little bit humble is to say okay i'm going to engage in this conversation even though i'm going to be ignorant on a lot of things i'm not going to be able to talk with the confidence that I usually do, except about my little thing. But I think that's uh, it's a it's a change from how we normally do our work. And but it's uh it's what it takes to to engage on these problems.
1: I, I completely agree with you, Adam. Um, I would accept that when I started working on SILRIF, I had no idea of climate insurance. I had very little understanding of adaptation. The only thing that I had was my background in finance. And and some extent of my work with climate change, but mostly on the mitigation side. So it it I, I pretty much came into this space knowing almost nothing. right. And I have learned so much from all these discussions and bilateral conversations and right. and the working group meetings. Uh, I, I still I, I, I think it, there is still a long way to go before we go into the details of how it will work. right. But you're right. We, I think for solving very difficult problems, we have no idea of many of the things and right. we have to sort of learn from each other. And I think it's been a learning experience. It's a huge learning experience for me, which I didn't even anticipate when I started this job three and a half years ago. Right. I, mean, I had no a, idea.
0: It's a little bit like research in the sense that as we're talking about this thing and trying to figure out how to do it, we're learning things, but those are things which, I mean, the thing itself has not been done before. So it's like research in that case. It's not just that the individual people are learning things, but the whole, you know, it's a new enterprise. So it's like research in that way. Indeed. So in that sense, it feels familiar, even though we're not sitting <laughs> yes, there and, and analyzing graphs and writing papers and stuff. Sure. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks again. I hope it uh, will succeed, and I'm happy to be part of it. And, yeah, thanks again for talking.
1: Thank you so much, Adam, for having me. Okay.
0: Okay, it was a pleasure to talk to Abhishek, and I hope you could hear why. And I hope you could hear, too, why I'm excited about SILRIF and why I want to see it happen. It's an outlet where we can take usable adaptation science and turn it into real climate adaptation. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli, and our editing and audio post-production are by Duotone Audio Group, where our editor, post producer, and audio engineer is Eugenio Gonzalez. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection.